Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Dr. Gerard Brennan. Gerard is the Senior Research Scientist with Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, Utah. Gerard, welcome. Thank you very much, Alan. It's a pleasure and an honor to be invited to do this. I'll give listeners a little summary and then we'll talk about your study. The, the title was Predicting Clinical Improvement in Patients with Low Back Pain. The investigators developed and validated a prediction formula that they used to estimate the probability of success for patients with low back pain. Outcome was measured using the modified low back questionnaire and data were extracted from Intermountain Healthcare's outpatient PT registry. The investigators had a development data set of over 63,000 patients who were seen between 2002 and 2013 and they had a validation data set that included over 15,000 patients who were served from 2015 to 2016. Baseline disability score was the most important factor in predicting a six-point improvement in their disability outcome measure. The type of payer and the duration of injury were the two most important factors and they predicted 30% improvement in disability with the best odds to achieve this outcome was having workers' compensation insurance and seeking care within 14 days of onset. So let me start, Gerard, by asking you to talk a little bit about what led you into this line of investigation. Yeah, good question. I, I mean, to be totally honest, I think it was a hunch that, um, you know, people who had not as good a chance or less than 50% chance of achieving a, a minimal clinical important difference that we weren't recognizing that right at the outset with the patient. And that if the physical therapist understood more specifically the chance of a patient not succeeding clinically in physical therapy, maybe they would pause and consider the possibilities of implementing different clinical pathways and making different clinical decisions. You know, we also based it on what we already had available to us in terms of data in the health system. It seemed reasonable to think that um, we could offer the patient a better, more specific estimate of the probability of significant clinical improvement, as opposed to saying, on average, we get 48% of patients better, you know, using a six point, which is what we've traditionally used as, a, or 36% better using a 30% criteria. I just always felt in the clinic, I ought to be able to give them a more specific estimate than on average, what is done. And, you know, it's just, playing off the ideas that we're all seeing in the news and on the media that of what bigger data sets can do. Well, you had a tremendous data set, no question about it, very powerful. And to be able to both develop and validate your prediction model was very impressive. 
Let's talk Thank about you. the average rate of success before we get into the specifics of your study. As you just mentioned, 48% of these patients achieve what you defined as a success. Now, what's your view of that rate of success? Is that something we should be happy about or something we should be concerned about? I'm concerned. I've never been able to really tolerate that in, in my own mind. Just because, you know, I think about, you think about what it takes for the patient to get to the physical therapy visit, what it costs now in terms of out of pocket. I'd like to be able to tell them what the probability is that I'm going to help them and, you know, that we can improve that success rate or we can decrease the rate of what I would call a failure of care. And so I don't know if that is that answering your question. Well, it does. And it, it is disturbing to me that on average, half of the patients that go to an extremely high quality network of clinics are not improving. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, this is low back pain. It is actually worse, uh, worse failure rates with other clinical conditions, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it begs the question, what drives that? What drives the poor success rate? And I think that there are some clinicians in clinics that have failure to progress rates. Failure to progress being the patient does not achieve a minimal clinical important difference. They have failure to progress rates that are in the 20s, okay? So, but, you know, we're looking at lots of patients over a pretty significant time frame. And what I believe drives that is that the clinical workflow is not standard, okay? We know what gets patients better that have low back pain. The evidence is there. Our problem is that we don't consistently deliver care that we know to be effective. So we don't go through all the steps of the evaluation process, okay? Um, you know, there can be confirmatory bias. You check a couple of things. You think, oh, the patient's this category or that category, where you haven't really gone through everything. And then we don't follow the treatment steps. We use a treatment-based classification system. Do we match the patient properly? And do we provide, deploy, implement the treatment that is um, matched to that classification? Now, we have shown that in other studies, and I presented this at COSTAR, that when the therapist complies and goes through all the steps, we've done, we've done a very structured audit, we've trained the auditors. When that happens, the probability, the majority of patients where they receive a thorough evaluation and the care gets matched to the classification, they do significantly better. There's, there's nothing new here. It's throughout medicine. If you deliver the care, we know what care it is. If you deliver it, greater probability the patient will get better. That's what it comes down to. So Gerard, could you talk a little bit about how you were so successful in achieving such high completion rates in both data sets? You achieved 77% in one and then 84% in the second. 
in my experience, those are very high completion rates. Can you talk a bit about how you did that? Yes, I, I, think, uh, I think it relies primarily on establishing a standard workflow in the clinics. And you notice that the 77% was in the earlier years, the 02 to 13, and 84% in the later years. So there's a maturation effect there. They, you know, clinics adopting the, uh, the whole system and learning the workflow and standardizing it. Standard workflow result, you get better, better results. Um, but what gets confusing is, uh, readers should understand that those percentages are of all patients that walked in the door, okay, that had two scores, okay? So, you know, there were another 23% of patients that walked in the door, but we had two scores on 77% of them, and then the same applies to the 84%. Um, that's really what it gets down to is a standard clinical workflow and an embedded data system in the workflow. Well, let's talk about this specific uh, study um, in and of itself. It was interesting to me that um, you chose two different outcome measures and they're all were kind of based on the, um, the MCID concept. You used a six point improvement in your outcome measure and a 30% uh, improvement over the initial disability score. Why both measures? Why not just pick one? And what led you to those two indicators for success? Okay, first of all, both indicators, six points and 30% are substantiated in the literature. Okay, Fritz and her gang in 2001 in PTJ uh, published their study uh, on the modified uh, Swiss Street Disability Questionnaire. Um, and then Ostello and Deo and Stratford, they published in Spine in 2008, the 30% um, recommendation. Now, the question is, what drove me to do both, okay? What drove me to do both is being in the clinic and seeing a patient come in with a high score and knowing that, okay, I, I mean, chances are pretty good I can improve this patient six points with, with when they're coming in with a score of 46 or 50 something on the uh, Oswestry, a higher range disability score. Um, but when I would write my notes, I would think, you know, hey, I mean, I ought to be able to get a 30 improvement. You know, if this person coming in at a 50, you know, I mean, it would really be an improvement if I could get a 15 point change an improvement for this, okay? So I was substantiating it based on the literature. I was, I was validating it in my own mind. You know, six points, just, it isn't enough. It, it is when, and we, it is when you get down to an initial score of 20 points on the Oswestry. And what we were doing there in the database is to say, well, if they come in with a 20, they got to get a 30% improvement. So they got to get a six point improvement there. But if they come in at an 18 or a 16, they just need, you know, a 30% improvement. Um, 
and and were and so we gave some flexibility. But the system was built on six points. The ROM system was built on a failure to progress criteria of six points. But when we did the study, I said, look, I want to go back and see what's the difference if we had used 30 percent, you know, and I got pushback from the reviewers on why didn't you use 50 percent? Well, you know, I'm familiar with that because when we do funded research studies, we do use 50 percent because there can't be any question that patient has to be labeled having improved in a research study. But day in and day out in a clinic, all comers, you know, 50% is really tough to get. Yeah. As I mentioned in, in the summary of your study, um, the baseline disability score, workers' comp, and um, how quickly they got to therapy all predicted your outcome. But right. What I didn't mention is that there were several other factors that really weren't driving success. The age of the patient, the gender of the patient, and baseline pain. Were you surprised by the lack of association of those factors with success in your model? No, because studies on low back pain time and again show that age and sex, they're just, they don't account for a significant amount of the variability. Now, baseline pain, that's a little surprising. As a clinician, you would think that that matters, okay? And it does matter. But what happens here, I think, is that the, the pain um, is closely correlated with the disability score. So in and of itself, it doesn't account for unique variability in the outcome. So I, I, I think, you know, but it does show up when you're, when you're looking at, um, you know, a parsimonious set of factors, whether it's three factors or four factors, baseline pain's there. And even in our study, baseline pain was there, I think in the uh, 30, in the 30% improvement. Um, it, you know, it's not like it was absent. Okay. So it's, um, but that's the reason in, yeah. in terms uh, of accounting for variability. I suspect it as such, because uh, I would assume there's a high multicollinearity between pain and disability right. with your outcomes. You mentioned you weren't surprised that age wasn't related because it's been shown in other research. Yet patients who were on Medicare as well as Medicaid were less likely to succeed than patients who are on workers' comp. Talk a bit about that finding, if you would. I, it, it's, it's tough and it's one man's opinion, okay? So the listeners, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, when I, uh, when I think about people on Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, what's driving their lower probability and here you are, Dr. Brennan, saying that age isn't a determinant factor. Well, I think about what are the social determinant factors for people who are using that sort of um, medical insurance, you know? What sort of, when I talk about social determinants, what, what sort of support at home do they have to 
do the exercises on a regular basis, um, how is the therapist talking to them? Are they really trying to understand the level of self-efficacy and confidence of the patient to comply and adhere to the home exercise program successfully? Um, then what's the complexity? You've got the social determinants, then you have the complexity of the disease processes. What other disease processes are involved beyond low back pain that are influencing this? You know, we, you know, accounting for that. And the, and the last thing I would say is, so you have, you know, these patients in your clinic, you know, a, a good proportion of these patients. What sort of team-based care is available to the physical therapist? I think we lack team-based care and we lack um, a way to assess um, in real terms the complexity that the patient is presenting to us in terms of disease, social determinants, and then where do we turn to get support on the healthcare team? Does the primary, is the primary care uh, person, are they aware of what's going on? Is there behavioral health that's available and that we have access to if we need help with that? These are things that are not happening. You know, most of my career, we went through with this attitude of, you know, uh, physical therapy can solve all things and we, we wanted to be independent and we wanted to really show our worth, which are good goals, except that we just can't run the ball by ourselves all the time. Okay, we need help. And a healthcare team needs to work in an integrated fashion to be successful. And we do not do that in our uh, delivery system. And that's, that's the uh, point, one of the major points of the academies of um, uh, science that just came out on primary care. Yeah, good points, good points, Gerard. You know, one of the real strengths in your study, in my view, was that you, you built in a validation stage for your model, as well as the development stage. And the two cohorts were quite similar. But one of the ways in which they did differ is that the cohort of patients from 2015 and 2016, on average, um, were more likely to delay access to physical therapy. That surprised me. And it I surprised wonder if, you. If, if it surprised you and if you thought about why that seems to have happened. I don't know if it surprised me, but I noticed it. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Okay. And when I look at it, and maybe this is um, this is too broad a stroke to brush this with, but um, I think the care has been delayed due to payer reimbursement policy. Um, it's costing patients more to go to therapy because copays have gone up. Um, people are in high deductible plans. Um, and so they're having to take the money out of their pocket to pay for these things. And so they delay it. But Gerard, in Intermountain, given the work that you and your colleagues have done previously showing how early physical therapy results in substantial savings in diagnostics and medication and surgery. I was surprised that the payers that 
Intermountain works with haven't seen the light and have in, enhanced access to physical therapy care because of the potential savings. Yeah, and Alan, we've had this discussion, you and I, over the years, and um, you make a good point. And, you know, I can't, I can't answer the question as to why the payer doesn't see the light, okay? But I can tell you that what I've heard is that because the data we have presented, it's compelling and it's impressive, okay? And they don't argue with the data, um, but they are considering now um, uh, bundled payments and uh, reducing the barriers to access to care. Um, and so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Now that's all, that's all great, okay? But my, my point is, if you're going to do that, design the system, not only in terms of the policy, but how are you gonna structure your information systems so that you can collect the, the appropriate data to really examine the results six months and a year down the road instead of flying by the seat of our pants? Yeah, makes perfect sense. And as you say, we've talked about that in the past. So let's talk a little bit about the bottom line to your study. How does a prediction formula, like the one you have developed and validated, how is it going to enhance decision-making by the therapist and help them in managing their care more effectively? Okay, yeah, I mean, great question. And, you know, when I talk about this in the discussion in the paper, and I, you know, I think where I'm, what drives me is, to help therapists discern what patients are at high risk to fail, okay? Um, because when you're in the clinic and you're going one patient after another, after a while, you just start. You know, it's, it becomes, okay, that patient, yeah, I got my last patient better, you know, and I, I do this and the patient gets better type of thing. And it's important to stop and maybe have some measure that helps you say, whoa, right at the beginning, this patient's at a higher risk not to achieve a clinical improvement, okay? So that now as a therapist, I pause. And now I'm thinking, how do I engage this patient more effectively? I've got to be more discriminant in my thinking about the clinical decisions I'm making. I've got to be more aware of how I'm communicating with this patient. Maybe I should really be thinking about using my motivational interviewing skills with this patient um, and understanding their, their confidence, their self-efficacy to do the things that I'm going to be asking them. And just raising the awareness of the physical therapist to consider a broader scope of possible interventions working in a team, okay, early in the care process. So that they're, you know, maybe they, at that point, they're thinking, I need to pull in behavioral health. I need to talk to the primary care physician about what we're doing here, what I'm seeing, and how we can 
augment this patient's total care instead of thinking that just because I do A, B, and C and they went to physical therapy, they're going to get better. It's just not that simple. And patients more and more today are more and more complex, I think. It would be interesting in terms of future research if you guys could really investigate whether or not you could show a real improvement in the proportion achieving success by doing a more targeted intervention at those high-risk patients. I think that would be a worthwhile right. project. And, and, and even more basic than that, you know, because we can send the email with this probability to the therapist before the patient even gets back to the treatment room. Does the therapist look at it? Yeah. Or acknowledge it in some way? What different what difference does that make when the therapist consistently looks at that? compared to um, another group where the therapist never even looks at it. Yeah. Well, particularly- And, and then all the, all the things you said, but I mean, just at a very superficial level. Well, Gerard, thank you, first of all, for yeah. publishing. Fun. I think it's really important and very clinically practical work as you guys have been doing for a long time at Intermountain. So congratulations. And thank you for taking the time to discuss it with our listeners today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Have a good day.